Namaste and hello. Thank you everyone for joining us this evening for our webinar. My name is Sheetal Shah and I'm the CFO and Managing Director of the Hindu American Foundation. For those of you who are not familiar with the Hindu American Foundation, we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization that works to create a better understanding of Hinduism and Hindu Americans through advocacy. Tonight, we are joined by two very distinguished guests. Many of you may remember Eddie Stern, who joined us earlier in the month to share a range of yoga and breathing techniques to manage stress and anxiety. Eddie is a world-renowned Ashtanga yoga teacher based here in New York City. He is also the author of a fantastic book called One Simple Thing and the co-creator of The Breathing App. Eddie has been my yoga teacher for almost a decade, and he's now teaching classes online throughout the week, which I highly recommend. You can see his schedule and sign up at eddiestern.com. Our second guest does not need much of an introduction. Dr. Deepak Chopra is the founder of the Chopra Foundation, a nonprofit entity for research on well being and humanitarianism, and Chopra Global, a modern day health company at the intersection of science and spirituality. He is a clinical professor of family medicine and public health at the University of California, San Diego, and serves as a senior scientist with Gallup Organization. Dr. Chopra is the author of over 89 books, and his latest bestseller is MetaHuman, Unleashing Your Infinite Potential. Eddie and Dr. Chopra have collaborated on a number of projects over the past decade, including The Urban Yogis, a gun violence and harm reduction program, which has helped to reduce gun violence in Queens, New York, and employ youth from underserved areas as yoga teachers a yoga and meditation program at the Harlem Village Academies in New York, and several other nonprofit educational endeavors. Both are active in scientific research on yoga and meditation and their effects on overall health and well-being. So before I hand this over to them, I just want to note that due to the number of folks on this call, we will be holding all questions until the end. Please do not use the raise hand feature or the chat feature. Instead, you can submit your questions via the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And after Eddie and Dr. Chopra are finished, HAF's Executive Director, Suhag Shukla, will moderate the Q&A portion of the webinar. And with that, I will turn it over to you, Eddie. Okay, thank you very much, Shito, and also Suhag for having us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here again. And uh, Deepak, thank you so much for joining us, joining me in this conversation tonight. Um, just so folks know, um, uh, Deepak is now an old friend of mine. Uh, he is a mentor and a teacher for me, as well as a collaborator. And um, uh, he's a leader in the field of yoga research, as well as so many other type of meditative techniques. Um, and and has um, was really at the forefront of a lot of the things that are now considered to be normal in the entire range of spirituality, science, practice, meditation, etc. So uh, Deepak, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, Thanks. I, you're welcome. Uh, I'd like to start off by uh, 
by saying that a, a bunch of years ago, you and the Hindu American Foundation engaged in a lively debate uh, in actually dialogue in the Washington Post. And um, I uh, and you, the worldviews you guys both brought into it were slightly different. And I just want to acknowledge that I'm, I'm really inspired by both you and the Hindu American Foundation for this modeling of what healthy dialogue looks like. I don't think people would expect that we would be here speaking with them tonight. So um, I think that that is a, a, a testament to the, the principles that both of you guys hold in value. Um, so since the um, COVID virus has hit uh, the world and especially hit America, you've been extremely active. You've done daily Instagram meditations and talks. Um, you have your 21-day meditation with Oprah. You've been doing every single new show that, that's possibly imaginable. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the activity and, and why you've been doing what you've been doing? Yeah, there are a few things. Uh on uh, our research, which are very relevant to what's happening with the COVID-19 pandemic. So very early on, uh, it was uh, very obvious that the people who were really getting sick and who were dying from the infection were either old or had chronic illness like diabetes or heart disease or hypertension cancer, autoimmune illness, uh, other infections, tuberculosis, whatever, it doesn't matter, but they all had chronic disease or old age or infirmity. But when you examine them, and this is now well established, all people with chronic illness have what is called low-grade inflammation in the body. It's, it's measurable. You can measure certain things called cytokines, which are inflammatory markers. And it was suggested that only those people were at risk. But recently, we've seen young people who've uh, had extreme morbidity and uh, mortality, have death from COVID, uh, millennials, some with strokes, uh, some having cardiac arrhythmias. And looking at the literature, which we do at our nonprofit uh, 501c3 Chopra Foundation, we look at all the computer models and all the literature globally uh, on the research. And we discovered something very interesting, and that was that almost all people who get sick, they get what is called a cytokine storm. So in addition to already having some chronic inflammation because of whatever, you know, drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, lifestyle, lack of sleep, stress, they get, in addition to chronic inflammation, they get acute inflammation. It's like a storm. So inflammation actually is a protective response of the body. When you fall down, you get a bruise, that's inflammation. And it protects you from bleeding to death. When you get um, uh, exposed to pneumococcus, uh, you get acute inflammation, so you can prevent getting pneumonia. So actually, inflammation is a protective response, just like uh, homeostasis is. But when it goes out of control, as in these cases, and then it creates havoc. And so um, why is that happening? Why are some people getting these acute storms and others aren't? So you look at the usual risk factors of lifestyle, lack of sleep, stress, 
panic, um, uh, unhealthy emotions, anger, resentment, uh, fear predominantly. Fear is the major emotion. And all of that results in inflammation. We know that. We know that from old research. The acute inflammatory response, though, this COVID storms, or what are called cytokine storms, that's a new phenomenon that is being observed. So that's one part of the story. The other part of the story, which is even more interesting, is, uh, and you're partly responsible for that uh, uh, literature that I have paid attention to now uh, for the last few years, is that uh, all the eight limbs of yoga, starting with <laughs> niyama, yama, pranayam, yogasana, uh, pratyahara, dharana, dhyan, samadhi, in that particular sequence, which is very interesting, the sequence itself is very interesting. But all these actually stimulate a part of our nervous system that opposes the sympathetic overdrive that results in inflammation, compromising of the immune system, and these inflammatory storms. And that is because these practices, the eight limbs of yoga, they all stimulate a part of our nervous system, as you know, <clears throat> called the parasympathetic nervous system, the dominant nerve that is vagus, uh, which is a very interesting uh, nerve, by the way. It's the 10th cranial nerve and goes from the midbrain, but goes to every part of the body. It influences the tone of your voice, your facial expressions, eye movements, your body language, your gestures. In other words, it's a reflection of flexibility in response to situations and circumstances and being centered, really. It's the opposite of the sympathetic overdrive. And only recently has, um, has the medical industry paid um, attention to this particular nerve. Accidentally, the, the, it was approved, uh, electrical stimulation of vagus nerve was approved by the FDA for one condition, intractable epilepsy. So what you do is you put an electrical implant in the vagus nerve. You can stimulate it through a device, including your iPhone. And in some cases of epilepsy, it helps. So that's why it was approved. But to their astonishment, the researchers found that um, if you um, stimulate the vagus nerve, not only does it get rid of the epilepsy, but people who have asthma and arthritis and heart disease and hypertension, all these um, diseases which are accompanied by inflammation, they also get better. So I met with the R&D um, department of one of the biggest uh, pharmaceutical companies in the world. They said, you know, we know these uh, three-dimensional molecules that we call pharmaceuticals, they are, don't really work in the long run. So we are now looking at something called electroceuticals. I said, what is electroceuticals? They said, yeah, it's electrical devices that can stimulate different parts of vagus nerve. I said, but we can do that with yoga. In fact, with the yoga asanas, and yoga asana is a very interesting word. Asana means seat. Yoga asana means seat of awareness. A seat of awareness that takes you back to the source of all experience, including perception, thought, etc. And if you look at all the yoga asanas, you know, whether it's twisting and lying and standing or 
or any of them, you know, forward bends, backward bends, even a simple thing like sun salutation, it stimulates selectively every branch of the vagus nerve, every branch. So you can actually consciously, through yogic practices and meditation, mindfulness, vipassana, and many others, pranayama, pratyahara, yoga nidra, you can actually target which part of the body you want to um, induce self-regulation, decrease inflammation, optimize functioning through yoga and all these practices. Um, so I mentioned that to him. He said, we know that, but how do we make money out of this? I said, well, you figured that out, but you know, even an electrical uh, implant is a dangerous thing. Why don't you use a magnet? Uh, and that would do the same thing. You can stimulate it. And at some point, start recommending yoga. I never heard from him. But we started looking at this. And now we have evidence and we have, pre- we have published some of it and we're publishing more of it. But we think through uh, yogic practices, including chanting, by the way, when you chant, as you know, and the chanting, whether it's a chant with Om in it or not, or Brahmari chants or all the other chants we have, they stimulate the vagus nerve and they induce self-regulation. So uh, we have a new era coming forth, I think, where self-regulation will um, be acutely, precisely monitored through um, through bioregulation and even new algorithms that will look at brain biofeedback, heart biofeedback, immune biofeedback, endocrine biofeedback, neurogenetic biofeedback, epigenetic modulation, inflammation. You can create all these algorithms, then you can create the algorithm for the algorithms. And soon we'll have a science which is very precise. Precise, personalized, uh, predictable, participatory, preventable, and actually look at chronic disease and even prevention of acute inflammatory storms through yogic practices. This will be amazing if we can actually follow through on all this. There's a lot of work to be done because it's one thing to say yoga prevents, uh, stimulates uh, the parasympathetic nervous system and decreases inflammation. That's a fact. It's another thing to say that acute uh, cytokine storms cause sickness. But it's a third thing to say we did this and proved that you can prevent and even reverse inflammation. So we have a little work to do, but it's very exciting. <clears throat> yeah, a paper soon coming out with um, Rudy Tamsey from Harvard and um, Michelle Williams, who is the Dean of Public Health at Harvard as well, uh, William Bushell, and um, uh, also uh, Ryan Castle, uh, and Paul Mills from UCSD. And... Um, the title of it is Meditation and Yoga Yoga as an Adjunct Treatment to COVID. Um, I read a draft of the paper that um, Bill sent me, and it was fascinating. Um, so be careful, Eddie. We have submitted this paper to many journals with very prestigious institutions and co-authors. But the way academia works, it's like anything else. There's a lot of politics and so on. But well, we'll get... We get the paper published for sure, and we're getting other papers published, but we have to wait. But there's a little bit of time involved. There was a lot of interesting information in, in, in it, and um, 
Um, some of the things I was going to say, you've already said that stress creates inflammation. Um, they have chronic stress, um, yeah, particularly. But it was interesting that you said that this, um, that the that the cytokine storm is an acute stress which is attacking the body. Um, normally, acute stress will attack and then dissipate, and this is, sounds yeah. like an stress that attacks but keeps on attacking. Um, so meditation is a regulating influence on the immune system. Um, would you like to talk about that at all? Yeah, of course. You know, when we say meditation, there are so many kinds of meditation. So my introduction to meditation was mantra meditation through Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And then afterwards, I met the Shankaracharya of Jyotirmat and was introduced to primordial sound meditation, the old Shankaracharya tradition of mantra meditation, hundreds of mantras for all kinds of purposes. So uh, that was my introduction to meditation. But then, you know, as you go deeper, there's vipassana and there are so many kinds of vipassana. Today, the fashionable term is mindfulness, which is an oxymoron because it has nothing to do with the mind. You know, meditation is not the, uh, nothing to do with the mental activity. The awareness of mental activity is not mental activity. But notwithstanding that, mindfulness is here to stay as a term. Vipassana, which means insight meditation, is the awareness of experience, whether that's a perceptual experience of sound, touch, sight, taste, color, or it's a sensation in the body, or it's an emotion, or it's the breath, or it's any mental cognitive space or the web of relationship or even our relationship with the universe and the ecosystem, it's very profound. Vipassana and the deep insights that come from Vipassana, mantra meditation, but then there are other meditations, you know, self-inquiry, self-reflection, the techniques taught by uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj or Atmanand Krishna Menon or Ramana Maharishi or uh, so many. Uh, I can't even name these people, but they have given us insights into the nature of reality and meditation in its totality is the solution to experience um, the joy that is beyond all human suffering takes you beyond the fragmented, um, conditioned ego mind, which is the cause of all our problems, personal, social, institutional, national, political, global. Everything comes from that one hallucination and meditation helps us there. It doesn't matter which aspect. I'd actually do all of these now. I practice meditation on death. I do yoga nidra. Uh, that's plenty of time right now to do all of this. Since one of the topics for tonight was uh, coping with COVID, and that's basically the, the, the title of the, the talk, would you like to talk about your seven pillars of well-being um, and how those can help us? Yeah. Yeah, I, I can talk. You know, you can talk about them superficially or you can go into deeper, deep. So the first is um, sleep. If you get regular sleep without uh, taking any drugs or pills, uh, maybe you can, uh, if you want, uh, uh, take an herbal supplement like uh, ashwagandha or shatavi or uh, brahmi. Brahmi is the best. But if you have good sleep at night, then that in itself 
uh, decreases inflammation, optimizes self-regulation, immune system, etc., etc. All the benefits are known. Flushes out. Sorry? Um, melatonin? Yeah, melatonin also, by the way, goes up during meditation and sleep. So taking a little homeopathic dose of uh, melatonin, like even small amount, one milligram, which is much less than the recommended five milligrams, or less than that 0.5 milligrams, will do uh, trigger your own melatonin response, which is part of the sleep response. So anyway, sleep is very important. But since we are on this topic from a yogic perspective, uh, sleep is the window to higher consciousness, to Turiya, Turiya Tata, Bhagavad Chetna, Brahmi Chetna, all the higher states of consciousness described in Shankaracharya's teachings, etc. Sleep is the window to develop what we call witnessing awareness in sleep through practices like yoga nidra or even death meditation. So actually, sleep is a spiritual experience and we should start thinking of it that way. It unleashes creativity because even though your conscious mind is totally asleep, no conscious experience other than in dreams, but in deep sleep, the unconscious, unmanifest mind, which the yogic traditions call sukshma sharir, karan sharir, etc., they are very active at that time. And there's all kinds of correlations happening and creativity happening. And actually what you're in touch with is what we would call the soul, jivatma. But of course, that's not a term in cognitive science these days. You know, you can't use soul, spirit, God in cognitive science. But they're coming there slowly. The operating word for soul these days in cognitive science is cognitive agent. So the, you are a cognitive agent having a human experience, which is another way of saying you're a jivatma in which the body-mind world experience, Jagat Mithya, is happening. Never mind the terminology. The point is, sleep is a window to the spirit and to healing. That's number one. Number two is stress management, but particularly all the practices of meditation, the different varieties of meditation. There's hundreds of them, hundreds. I mean, it's so amazing, the wealth of literature that is available on meditation if you care to look for it. So I would say that's number two. Number three is yoga asana and pranayam and uh, chanting and deep breathing and vocalization and singing, all these things, um, because they're very precise in terms of simulating the parasympathetic nervous system, particularly we talked about the vagus nerve, which interacts, as you know, with the facial nerve, the laryngeal nerve, on and on. So that's number three. Emotions uh, is number four. So, you know, in Buddhism, they say healthy emotions are uh, empathy, compassion, uh, equanimity, joy, love. And these are called divine emotions because they can connect us to the source of all experience. And unhealthy emotions are hostility and anger and resentment and grievances and guilt and shame and depression. And now we're seeing that actually these emotions are very important in bioregulation. So healthy emotions are divine emotions. They bring about homeostasis and self-regulation. Unhealthy emotions, which come from the fragmented ego identity, they cause disruption of self-regulation. So emotion 
emotional resilience, cultivating divine emotions is the fourth strategy. The fifth, I would say, is nutrition. And as a physician, early on in my career, I wasn't impressed by patients coming and telling me I changed my diet and my arthritis went away. I changed my diet and my cancer went into remission. I changed my diet and my asthma went away. I didn't believe them. I had no reason to. There was no logic to it. But now we know that two extra, two million extra genes live in your gut called the microbiome. And these actually have only 25,000 human genes. You have 2 million extra bacterial genes. And they respond to your emotions. They respond through epigenetics, through your diet. So if you have a plant-based diet, uh, which we you know, say vegetarian or these days even go further with vegan diets, uh, vegetarian is fine with milk products and ghee, as we say in India. But you know the ghee and milk products here are contaminated because of factory-produced animals that have pumped growth hormone and antibiotics and steroids and inflammatory products. But if you get your milk and your ghee or whatever from a cow to which somebody was playing a flute and worshipping it, it's a completely different product. Uh, and it regulates your microbiome. So even in the absence of all that, those rituals and all that, if you take a plant-based diet, which is maximum in diversity. In Ayurveda, we say six states, sweets are salt, bitter, pungent, astringent, and the seven colors of the rainbow. You have everything you need because these have phytochemicals. Phyto because they're derived from the energy of the sun. Then we worship the sun, right? We do rituals for the sun. So the sun is responsible for giving life to this planet through plants, photosynthesis, photons basically. And phytochemicals are very dense in what we call biological intelligence and self-regulation. So even the Ayurvedic herbs that uh, people have spoken about for thousands of years, when we look at them, we find they're anti-inflammatory, they're adaptogens. Adaptogens means they help the cellular response to stress. As stress causes cortisol, adrenaline, inflammation, compromising the immune system. And it turns out that things like Brahmi and Ashwagandha, Shatavri, you know, all these things, uh, Trifala, they all are adaptogens. But if you combine that with a plant-based uh, diet with maximum diversity of color and taste, you're resetting your biological apparatus, which is 99% of the genetic information in your body, only 1% or less is human, the rest is bacteria. We are part of the ecosystem of existence. All sentient beings share the same bacteria, the same biological intelligence. And so diet becomes very important. And the sixth thing is a connection with nature because we are an expression of nature. And when you're in nature, what happens is if you touch a tree or you walk barefoot on the ground or on the beach, or on the grass or on the earth, negative ions come from the earth into your body. They neutralize the excess free radicals that build up in your body, decrease inflammation, and reset your biological rhythms, which is part of the daily and seasonal routines of Ayurveda is also is grounding, as we call it, but resetting biological rhythms, circadian rhythms, seasonal rhythms, 
uh, tidal rhythms, gravitational rhythms, even lunar rhythms, which, by the way, were part of the rituals of Ayurveda as well. So it's very interesting that rituals incorporate um, these biological responses. That's the sixth pillar. And these days I'm talking about the seventh pillar, which is the most important. The rest, you know, follow if you want. But the seventh is most important. It's called self-realization. In the absence of self-realization, everything falls apart because it doesn't matter how healthy you are, you're still going to get old. At some point you get infirmity and then there's death. And none of what I said helps there. You have to go right to the source of all experience, all knowing, all knowledge, all perception, which is the self. So yeah, those are the seven pillars. Beautiful. And, and I think that's a, a wonderful addendum to it. Even in Yoga Sutra, Patanjali says that a video or not fully knowing who we are is the field for all other sufferings to occur. Yes, actually, you know, the Yoga Vashishta says something so profound in one sentence. It says the cause of all ignorance and all suffering is taking the world to be real and yourself to be unreal. Take the world to be unreal and yourself to be real. That's what Jagat Mitya is, because what we call the physical world is a species-specific interpretation of human perceptual activity, which is a narrow band of experience. What does the world look like to an insect with a hundred eyes, to a snake that navigates the world through infrared? through a bat that knows the world through the echo of ultrasound. Every sentient being has its own universe. In fact, we are already living in a multiverse. And if you go to the Yoga Vashishta again, it says, infinite worlds come and go in the vast expanse of consciousness like motes of dust dancing in a beam of light, uh, shining through a hole in the roof. I mean, an amazing uh, metaphor. In one sentence, we're talking about multiverse, we're talking about uh, uh, multiple worlds, we are talking about the latest theories of quantum mechanics, uh, and that one sentence. Very interesting. And you know, I've heard you say that quote before, but it just made me think of something for the first time now, which is when you talk about all the modes of dust dancing through that beam of sunlight, the word for uh, rajas, which is activity, rajas literally means dust. And I've been thinking, you know, why did they use the word dust to describe rajas? And that quote actually gives some insight. Because so, you know, the dust is particle. Okay? <laughs> particle, which is the fundamental unit of matter. But even that is, in a sense, a misperception. Because in the deeper reality, there are no particles. They're, they're human concepts for modes of knowing and experiencing human consciousness. By the time you see a particle in a hadron collider, it doesn't exist. It's a space-time event in consciousness. And so is everyday experience. Right now, you and I are having this experience. Every, Every sound, every image, every experience you're having right now is a snapshot. Is a snapshot. The continuum comes from the presence of being, the presence of consciousness, the presence of jiva or atma, whatever you want to call it. That is what gives continuity and meaning to experience when it's raw form. Experience is just sensations, images, feelings, thoughts, perceptions, and a bunch of colors and shapes. Um, This is a color. It's a shape. 
but human beings have called it an iPhone. This is a bunch, a color, a shape, a smell, a taste. We call these tanmatras. And tanmatras, of course, you know what they are, the aspects of the subtle body, but they translate into the stool, sharir, or physical body. But the physical body is not physical. It's, it's a modified form of consciousness. So even the particle is a modified space-time event in consciousness of a probability wave. Now, if you want to go all the way, and I can do this with you guys, not on mainstream uh, television, if you want to go all the way, the particle of space-time event is karma. Karma defines the statistical probability of space-time events based on interpretation of past experiences. So what is happening is our perceptual activities and our, our interpretation of them are the recycling of karma. Karma, sanskara, vasana, whatever term you want to use it, that's the software that is driving perceptual activity that we call the physical world, but there is no physical world. Maya, Leela, the play, Jagat Mithya. Beautiful. So we have about eight minutes left, uh, and uh, it's always um, it's always a, a joy to speak to you about things because we can just go and go and go in, in all these directions, and I think we're in a supportive form right now to talk about these things. Uh, I have two more questions for you. Uh, number one is, um, even before the whole COVID crisis occurred, you and I had been talking about how the entire world was on was in sympathetic overdrive. The world was inflamed. The environment was inflamed. Political systems were inflamed. Rajas, Rajas. And now we're like in a, a thousand times more of that inflammation. Um, and, and it's caused a crisis, a breakdown, a shutdown because there was too much inflammation and the world realized that it had to stop it um, from, from people dying and people getting sick. Um, the, this inflammatory overload is causing a lot of stress in people. It's causing stress and anxiety in children, um, in adults, in the elderly. Um, what, and, and I think that you, you've been preparing pretty much your whole life for um, being a guide for people when it comes to crisis and stress. That's a lot of your background um, as a doctor, as a meditation teacher, as a student of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. So what, um, what would you tell people um, who are at home with small children who are feeling stress and anxiety, who have um, partners in their homes who are feeling stress and anxiety? What's some of the guidance that you're giving to people now on a daily basis about just how to deal with the basis of stress and anxiety which is arising? Yeah, what I'm saying is it's complicated, Eddie. You know, if, if you have children who are less than five years, they're not listening to what you're saying. Um, they're just watching you. Okay, so if you're stressed, if your body language, the tone of your voice, your eye movements uh, show stress, uh, which these days you can even do a selfie, micro expressions, and you can actually create algorithms that will tell you how much stress there is. But leave aside that. Children read that. Okay, this phenomenon called mirror neurons. So no matter what you say to your children, how much you reassure them, they're not listening. They're watching you. Children love to play. So this is the time to play. 
Okay. And as adults, we forget that that's what Leela is. It's play, the play of consciousness. Go back to play. Go to entertainment. Go to singing. Read uh, hymns to them or sing them uh, sacred songs or whatever. Uh, if you don't feel like doing that, maybe play Elvis Presley or whatever. But give the children the experience of joy and playfulness and curiosity and wonder. and you can also do yoga with them. You can do breathing exercise. You can do chanting, so many things. After five years, that becomes difficult because, you know, children uh, are now bamboozled by human constructs and ego identity and all the things that create everything from war to terrorism to climate change to extinction of species. What you said, inflamed uh, world. Everything is inflamed, you know, from mechanized debt to atomic weapons to cyber warfare to poison in our food chain um, to uh, changing weather patterns. That's what COVID is taking advantage of. The stressed in, in stressed ecosystem of existence. Existence will take care of itself. It's already sent us to our cages so it can repair itself. You know, it seems like in Bangalore, the birds are singing for the first time. Uh, people can see the Himalayas from the Punjab hundreds of miles away. Away, The stars are clear. It can be seen at night in New Delhi. Something is happening, okay? And what nature is saying, existence is saying, we are taking care of ourselves. You guys go back to your cages. When you come back, come with a little more humility and reverence for life. But given that, for children right now, I think after the age of five, Engage them in reflection. Who are you? What do you want from your life? What is the meaning and purpose of our existence? There's something called dharma. There's something called gratitude. There is something called joy. There's something called transcending the fear of death because death doesn't happen to you. It happens to an experience, to a perception, to a thought, to an emotion, to a sensation, not to you. You know, once you start to understand this superficially through stories, enough stories in the Puranas. For all this, you know them better than I do because you're a student much better than I am. But there are enough stories in the Puranas to actually, you know, just take that Ganesh uh, behind me and there's a whole story there, okay? So go with the stories, inspire them, be joyful. I have so much, I mean, despite the fact that I'm still writing, still reading, still engaging in media, I do two hours of yoga every day. I do an hour to two hours of meditation. I do yoga. I'm having the best time of my life. So why can't we do this? When we get out there with a little more joy and fun, we're always in a hurry to get somewhere, but the only point of arrival is where you are right now. I cannot arrive where I'm standing right now. And that's the only point of arrival till the moment of death. You know, as kids, we used to ask our parents, are we almost there? Well, that's the metaphor of life. You're almost there till the moment you die. Well, that's a beautiful answer. Thank you. Sorry yeah. for long-winded answers. That was a fabulous answer. And, um, and you know, it's, and it's a, a great point that we have to be models for the behaviors that we want to, Correct. you know. So thank you for that. Uh, last question. Um, 
So far, you've referenced um, Nisargadatta and Ramana Maharshi and the Puranas and Yoga Vishishta, and you've spoken about Krishna. Many others, uh, Atmanan Krishna Men and J. Krishna Murti. I could go on and on. You're, you're an avid student and avid reader. You say you're not a student, you're a tremendous student. And so my last question for you is a question that you asked me to ask you, which was, um, are you a student of Hinduism? See, I asked you that because of the controversy. You know, my mother uh, came from a very, uh, very strict Hindu background. My father came from a Sikh Hindu background. I was schooled by English, Irish, Christian Catholics. My best friends were Parsis and Muslims and uh, Sufis. So I don't know what I am, other than the fact that I learned amazing things from all these people and amazing insights from all these people. I was never a scholar of religion as such, or religious ideology, or religious dogma, and still not, because I'm not even qualified. You know much more than I do, okay? But I definitely mind the truths that come from all these amazing traditions. So if Hinduism is this huge cultural identity that has embraced um, learnings and contributed to learnings in the wisdom traditions of the world. And if Buddhism and Jainism and Hinduism and Sufism and Sikhism are entangled systems of thought, then I'm all of them. But I'm also not all of them because I believe that systems of thought have limitations. And ultimately, there is no substitute for direct experience of reality. So I'm a yogi more than a Hindu, if that works. I was happy to ask you the question since you asked me to ask it. And uh, frankly, I was scared to. <laughs> but, um, the, um, but thank you. And uh, I think that now we will... Um, move on to our questions and answers. Um, and uh, I, I think that, you, you know, uh, again, that answer that you gave on your perspective is a beautiful perspective and it's your truth. And, um, and you grew up in very interesting circumstances with uh, parents who were, you know, so extremely devout. I, you know, I read about the stories of your youth and how your father and mother not only were the um, uh, attendants of the Queen and uh, England and other luminaries, but on weekends they would um, give medical advice and service to all of the poor people of your village and feed them and then, you know, send and them... And pay for them. And pay for it with no, with no payment. So, uh, so you, my mother would cook the food for the patients. My father would see the patients they would then pray for the patients and then they would make sure that the patients had enough money for their bus or their train to go back home from where they came. It's amazing, Seva. Okay, so uh, let's move on to the questions. Okay, thank you so much. This was just uh, such an such a informative uh, conversation and something that clearly both of you are very passionate about and it, and it showed through. I learned a great deal. And there's a lot of questions that are coming in. 
So maybe some brief answers um, will allow us to take as many as possible. Okay. Just a reminder to the listeners that you please use the Q&A feature. We are not using the raise hand feature. And I will try to get to as many questions as I can. So one of the questions, I think early on, you talked about the vagus nerve and uh, how there's companies that are even looking at electroceuticals. Is there harm in too much stimulation of the vagus nerve? Yes. Uh, people can get syncope. They can faint. It's called a vasovagal attack. And also the heart rate can slow down so much that uh, it's uh, uncomfortable. But with uh, yoga and breathing and pranayam, uh, you can't overdo it. Okay. Um, you gave some really good advice and tips for modeling um, in helping children deal with um, anxiety and maybe feeling cooped up during this uh, pandemic. What about teenagers? Uh, teenagers tend to have a mind of their own. I have a 17 and 21 year old, so I can attest to that. Uh, but what would you recommend for teenagers? Don't criticize them. That's the most important thing. <clears throat> because they're going through a phase, teenagers, where there is uh, hormonal turbulence, there's disturbance of sleep-wake cycles, there's also um, a question of identity. Uh, you know, there's lots of things happening in teenage years. <laughs> so the best thing is deep listening, attention. Listen to them, don't argue, accept them as they are, tell them you love them just as they are, and also appreciate some of their good qualities. They all have very interesting insights into everything. So I say the four A's, attention, affection, appreciation, and acceptance. Excellent. Excellent. Good words to live by. Uh, one question from one of our listeners is, what does your typical day look like? These days, it's very interesting. Um, I... Uh, go to sleep um, around nine uh, or um, sometimes even earlier, but latest by 12. And the reason I go to sleep earlier is I do about an hour and a half of meditation and yoga nidra. And, and actually these days I'm very, very uh, fascinated by what people call death. So I do uh, exploration of death through various Tibetan practices and uh, tantra practices. It takes me like an hour and a half and then I fall asleep. Depending on what time I've uh, slept, I wake up um, eight hours later and the first thing I do is I just lie in bed and I don't do anything. I just download any uh, any thoughts that I have. Then I do yoga and, and pranayam for another half an hour, uh, a half an, one hour, one and a half hours. And these days, because I have time, I can do two rounds. So I can do three hours of yoga and meditation. Then I do my Facebook Live. Then I have my lunch, which is the main meal of the day. Then I go for a walk with my wife. And she and I are sequestered here in La Jolla. So we walk the village, etc. The afternoon, I write, I read. And uh, start to wind down around 5, 6, and back to Yoga Nidra in the evening. From a regular person's point of view. It's a pretty boring life. But actually, that's been my life for many years now. I have very little social life, um, except when I'm on stage, then I have to interact with people, uh, with friends and family, uh, public events. But by and large, I have 
don't have a social life. So it's easy for me and it could be very boring for your teenagers. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing. Um, another question. Um, are there any specific yoga practices or exercises? And I guess either one of you can take this or both of you can. Uh, exercises that can help slow down memory loss. Um, um, I can give it a try through the Vedantic perspective, but uh, Eddie, you want to say anything about uh, about uh, this from a yogic perspective? Yeah, from a yogic perspective, um, memory is a key aspect of all of the practices. Um, and there is one verse in the Kata Upanishad that says, uh, that through the eating of pure, clean food, your uh, memory will become clear and pure. And through the purifying of the memory, you will remember who you truly are. And through remembering who you truly are, you will have realization. So the first key in Kata Upanishad is diet. Aharashudao Sattva Shudhiki. In Yoga Sutra, it said that... Um, you have to do some types of practices, for example, asanas, pranayama, meditation. And, but the way you do them is first with shraddha, with this conviction that what you're doing is bringing you in the direction you want to go in. And then that shraddha will, and which is from the, uh, of course, from the, the root, uh, verbal root, or the, the root, uh, which means the heart. So shraddha has to do with the conviction of your heart that you're moving in the direction you want to go. And then that creates vidya, which is vitality and energy. And through the creation of uh, vitality and energy, you will create smriti, the strengthening of your memory. So any of the practices you do, whether it's mantra or meditating on the breath or a walking meditation or asanas, done with conviction, create vitality, will strengthen um, the memory. So this is from a, a yogic perspective, just very briefly. So also from the Shiva Sutras and from the Yoga Vishishta, you would learn some very interesting insights into the mechanics of uh, creation. And um, if you read uh, the Shiva Sutras and some aspects of the Yoga Vishishta, um, this is what I've learned about memory. Um, we selectively should remember certain things and selectively should forget certain things. <laughs> Um, so in the Shiva Sutras, there's a phrase, I use memories, but I do not allow memories to use me. Mm. So when you allow memories to use you, you're a victim. When you use memories, you're a creator. In addition, there are other practices. Uh, the mental practice of um, activating what we call the Tanmatra. So like we have the five senses, mm. we have the five subtle senses, sound, touch, sight, taste, and smell. And you experience in consciousness these things. For example, uh, you can experience the voice of your mother if you think about it, or uh, a beautiful sunset if you think about it, or a starlit sky, anything in consciousness. Through the five senses, you activate and consolidate memory. So that's one thing, tanmatras. Seeing the whole in the particular, the particular in the whole. So that's a very other, other very interesting insight that comes from the Yoga Vishishta, that every incident is a totality of the entire universe. So when you look at anything, anything, what is this? It's a piece of paper. What is it? What is the paper? It's a tree. 
what's the tree? It is rainbow, sunshine, earth, water, bugs, and birds, and ecosystems. What is that? It's climate patterns, starlit skies, the whole universe in this piece of paper. Now, if you start thinking like this, in terms of the subtle body, and you also, when you do something, if you observe yourself doing it. So if I observe myself putting my keys or this in the drawer, I'll never forget it. Okay? But if I do it unconsciously, then of course, I'll forget it. So this is where Vipassana also comes in. Vipassana actually in real time, not in, uh, in meditation. Many ways to increase your memory, but don't overdo it because memories can torture you too. Right. Well, this pandemic has certainly given us that opportunity to realize all that interconnectedness. It's one tiny virus that all of us are facing and it's, it's all part of this ecosystem, right? Um, another question, what book, uh, Deepakji, what book are you reading right now? Except for one of your 89 books, <laughs> which book would you recommend the most? Well, there are several. There are all these books in my bookshelf, but I'm going back to some books that I've always enjoyed. Uh, uh, Freedom from the Known from uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Lost Horizon. It's a great book about um, why and how we age. Um, and first time the world was introduced, the concept of Shangri-La, that aging is a, is a state of consciousness. Um, I'm also reading uh, I Am That by Ms. Sargadatta Maharaj for the hundredth time. <laughs> I have the Upanishads here, so I randomly open them um, and read uh, whatever I can. And then I'm reading this amazing book right now, The Everything Answer Book by Amit Goswami, who's um, uh, from originally from Shanti Niketan, but... Uh, a student of the whole Tagore tradition, but he was also a quantum physicist. So he's talking about the mechanics of creation of the universe from a Vedantic perspective. Lots of stuff to read. And, uh, and here is uh, a beautiful um, summary of 30 major Upanishads. Uh, this is what uh, I'm reading. Who is that one by? Uh, this one is translated by Narayana Swami Ayyar. Okay. So for those of you who were interested Edited in... Edited by Madhu Khanna, forward by Karan Singh, one of the greatest scholars of all time. Right. The former right. Raja of Kashmir. Excellent. Um, so uh, some qu a question for Eddie. Um, what asana... You're going to say all of them, but maybe you can give a specific answer. What asana regulates the vagus nerve? <laughs> <laughs> I know you're going to say all of them, but maybe, uh, maybe a, a small series that someone can maybe take away and, and incorporate if they don't have a yoga practice. Okay, so um, sun the, the sun salutations would be a very good thing to do. And um, whatever your asanas you're going to do to help regulate the vagus nerve should be done with breathing, with smooth and even breathing. Things that are going to be... Um, Relaxing forward bend type movements are going to be more down-regulating for the sympathetic nervous system and up-regulating for the relaxation response. So for people who don't do a lot of yoga or are not active, something like child's pose would be very beneficial. 
Um, a standing hanging forward bend would be very beneficial. Lying down on your back um, and doing Shavasana would, and with long, slow, deep breathing would also be very beneficial. Thank you. Um, here's a question from someone who's 72 years old. Uh, I'm a 72-year-old woman, very active. I do yoga, Pilates, and eat a plant-based diet. However, I'm isolated and alone. And what would you recommend? I cannot see my children or grandchildren. FaceTime them as many times as you can. Send them emoticons so they can get a dopamine hit. So <laughs> there's all kinds of things you can do. Play music to them. Tell them to sing for you. Communicate with them. It is recommended, by the way, that we need six hours of social contact every day. And that includes physical contact. Um, that's, the, that's the current science. Uh, we can't do that right now, but we can do it online and we can do it uh, on, through these technologies. So do as much of that as you can. Uh, someone asked that as, you know, as we re-enter, I guess, the new normal, uh, what, what practices, if you had to choose one, um, if you're working a nine to five job, what one practice would you recommend? Mantra meditation, yoga nidra, pranayam, or hatha yoga practice? The shortest, fastest is pranayam. Okay. Immediate, if you want. And Eddie is the expert. We can tell you on that. But I would say uh, pranayam is the most effective. And also mantra meditation is very effective if you do it for 15, 20 minutes. But pranayam, even for two minutes would immediately change your biology. So pranayam is the fastest. I would agree with that totally. If I could only uh, choose one practice to do, I would, in fact, resonance breathing is one of my favorite things to do. Um, just equal inhales and exhales. It's very effective very quickly. Okay. And I have a feeling that this might be the same answer to what what you just said, but we'll, we'll go with it anyways. How can someone work on avoiding fear of the situation? So here's um, one thing. If you deny your fear or you, if you don't embrace it, it gets worse. Anything that you resist, as they say in English, persists. So you can't, um, can't be in denial of your fear. Every emotion has two components. There's a thought component, the fearful thought, what's going to happen to me or my loved ones. And then there's another component, it's a sensation. Emotion is both the thought and the sensation in the body. That's why we call our emotions feelings. We feel them in our body. So anytime you take your attention away from the thought into the sensation, you disrupt the connection. Now, of course, you know, we have the seven chakras, which tell you which emotion is lodged where, and there are lots of details. But all you have to do is take your attention from the fearful thought and put it on the sensation and keep it there till it dissipates. And now you've moved through the fear. So there is no way around the fear. Just like we said, the way through this fire is through the fire. Now, what we are also ex experiencing these days is actually grief, grief at a certain way of life. And I've seen that happen uh, very rapidly in uh, the stages of grief. 
when people have a heart attack or they're dying and they're, they have very little time to live, they first get feel victimized. Why me? Well, in this case, it's not just me, it's everyone. Second stage is they get angry and resentful. Third stage is they get frustrated. Fourth stage is they get resigned and feel helpless. And fifth stage, and I've seen this actually when I'm seeing patients and they're dying in the middle of the dying process, at a certain stage, they get acceptance. And as soon as they get acceptance, they're at peace. Okay, so that is what we're going through. But acceptance is not enough. Beyond acceptance is meaning. And meaning is what we're now wanting to find. What is the meaning of this? We take our existence for granted until something happens. We should have never taken it for granted to begin with. And that's where yoga and these practices come in because they take you beyond these fears. If you look at the essential religious experience, and I'm not talking about Hindu experience or Buddhist experience or any experience, but the essential uh, experience, it has three components. One is transcendence. You go beyond space-time and causality to a place which can only be called infinite, number one. Number two, the emergence of platonic values like truth, goodness, beauty, harmony, love, compassion, joy, equanimity. And number three, the loss of the fear of death. That's the essential because the loss of the fear of death occurs because you go beyond your ego to your spirit, which is timeless. That's the essential That's the essential religious experience. Whatever you do, if you can get to that experience, you will never have fear. And the fear of death is the cause of all other fear because all fear is fear of the unknown. But if you can embrace that unknown and make it known to yourself right now as your spirit, no fear. Well, that's a great place to end. I really want to thank, thank you, Eddie. Uh, for joining us tonight and bringing your friend, your mentor, your teacher, your collaborator, Dr. Deepak Chopra, and uh, for one, just a deeply inspiring and informational conversation, and um, and just continuing in the spirit of of dialogue and and openness. We really appreciate you coming to HAF, and to all our listeners out there. If you enjoyed tonight's webinar please be sure to share the podcast, which will be republished with your friends and family who missed it. It will also go up on YouTube so you can share it from there. And don't forget to register for our next webinar in the Coping with COVID series. We have Chef Vivia Alter returning again, and she will be uh, applying Ayurvedic principles to Italian cuisine. So that is on May 7th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. You can visit hinduamerican.org. Uh, front slash uh, events to register. So again, thank you so much, Dr. Chopra and to Eddie. Namaste. Stay yeah, thank you. By, by the way, send us a link so we can also promote it on our social media. And if it's okay, we'll put it on our YouTube channel as well. Absolutely. We will do that. But this was thank great you. to have you here. Thank and you. Uh, we look forward to more conversation. Namaste. Thank you.